Good morning, church. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians. Towards the back of your Bible in the New Testament, what a joy it is to be studying together this God-ordained part of His Holy Word. Um, Today we're going to be studying the second part of verse 8 through verse 12. By way of reminder, and to give us some context for our time in the Word this morning, let's look at verse 7 through 12 to begin. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. God's good word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time that you've ordained for us to gather in this place. To have access to your holy word in our language. To study it and know it and be taught it and to grow in these truths. Father, you are the living God, worthy to be praised, worthy of all of our obedience, all of our lives. Father, I pray for each one here today who uh, you've ordained to be with us, that, that you would be mightily at work, that each one would be able to set aside the distractions of the flesh, the, the call of the temporary, the, uh, the noise of the busy life that, that is and that surrounds us, that we would be able to just be still this morning and know that you are God and to focus on your good word. The Holy Spirit would bring conviction and maturity and worship that we would authentically respond with joy and celebration for all that you are and all that you're doing. God, we thank you for this time. Give me clarity in my preaching. Your word would be understood. We would mature and grow in the truths that you have set forth for your purposes and perfect plan. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. That was the focus of last week's sermon. Redemption, forgiveness, an inheritance, the riches of His grace. 
so amazing, so wonderful. Paul continues, in all wisdom and insight. The words wisdom and insight is our next focus in this passage. Church, it is the gospel that's in view here. We see it both in the preceding words that we studied last week, redemption, forgiveness, and with the words that follow wisdom and insight that God gives in His design and doing of the gospel. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. That's the gospel. The good news of the grace of God through the blood of Jesus for the redeeming of undeserving sinners. And then the words that follow, wisdom and insight in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will. That too is the gospel. And we'll dive into the details of that in a moment. I want to tell you that this is in reference to the gospel. The fulfillment of God's covenantal predetermined plan to save His people through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's what's in focus for Paul in all of these verses here together. First, I want us to consider the weight of Paul's words here, specifically regarding the wisdom of God. We need to slow this morning to do business with the wisdom of God. Because only a right and full embrace of it will help us to see and savor what Paul's emphasizing here. I feel that although many of us would never claim to think that God is not completely wise, in our flesh we all too often challenge His commands or ways as not being wise. We must see that this is sin, that this is something we should repent of, turn from unto a new practice as we mature in Christ and faith. First, what is wisdom? The definition of wisdom is the soundness of an action or a decision with regard to the application of truth and knowledge. Based on truth and knowledge, it's the soundness of action or decision. It's wise. When thinking about whether God is wise, and or the things He commands and decrees are wise, let's just consider the definition. Is God sound in his action or decisions in regards to truth and knowledge. Well, God is truth and is all-knowing. Therefore, his soundness of action and decision based on his knowledge and the truth is always spot on. 
every time. Do you, do you get that? There is no one wise like God. It is our absolute sinful arrogance, pride, to think that we have a better angle or way or insight than He does. God is not only perfectly wise. He is the source of all wisdom. Here's what the Word of Truth Catechism says about God's wisdom based on Holy Scripture. See it on the screen. Wisdom, as God's attribute, is this. God is eternally wise and the source of all wisdom. God possesses wisdom perfectly and has decidedly ordained all things perfectly including the best ways to accomplish His decisions. The wisdom of God is manifest in His creating, ordering, providence in, and governing of all things. Paul also uses the word insight in our verse. Wisdom and insight. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Insight here is essentially the other side of the coin of wisdom. But with more emphasis on what He knows. His insight, His knowledge... God is perfectly wise largely because He knows all things. He lacks no insight on any situation. This points us to His omniscience. God's attribute. God is perfect. God has perfect and complete knowledge. He knows all things that exist and all things that could have existed. He never learns, nor does He forget. God cannot grow in understanding, knowledge, or wisdom because He lacks nothing. I slow to draw this out this morning because we're often guilty in our flesh of doing something that we absolutely should never do. And that is question or doubt God. The, the root of questioning God is to believe that maybe He got something wrong. Or to doubt Him would be to maybe think that he misplayed it. His ways are perfect because he is perfect. 
There is no insight or wisdom that we have that he doesn't have. So why do we all too often challenge his commands and or question his ways of doing things? Beloved, we must slow to see our gross error in this. We must learn to better live out our faith in God. To lean in. To heed His warnings and obey His commands because they are truly better than ours. But are we still guilty of saying, I understand that's what God's Word says or what He commands me to do or not to, but whatever follows that is just error. The the but that leads to any other line of thinking or reasoning that leads me down a different path is just error. It's sin. What we need to, to do is slow down and Declare less and listen better and obey with faith. But our flesh is at war with the fruit of the Spirit. And so we, we outthink it. We, we, we make excuses. We reprioritize. God gives us priorities, commands, and then we say, well, but I like this. This is going to equal this for my life. And I like that better. When God says, have nothing to do with sexual intimacy outside of marriage, why do we think somehow it's okay to go there? When God says to honor the Sabbath, By committing one day in seven of every week He gives us in this life to unplugging from our producing and working so that we can worship and pray and fellowship and be a blessing to others? Why do we think that there's a better schedule or better economy, a better way to steward our week that denies that command? And does it our way. When we want to make war with these things, when we want to think we have a better path, I want you to see you're making war with the wisdom of God. His way is absolutely best. Don't waste your time anymore thinking you've got a little side road you're going to take and it's going to somehow work out better. You're not more wise than he is. When God predetermines before creation to lavish upon his elect the riches of his grace unto our redemption through Christ's blood, why do we question that this is the wisest way to do this? So back to the text. See with me. That Paul is holding up these 
these mighty, amazing, perfect plans and decrees of God's election and redemption and adoption. And he's pointing to them in the opening of this letter. He's pointing to these things and he's saying, see the wisdom and see the insight and perfection of God in these things. Let it flood your soul with praise and confidence in Him. Do not let your sinful, prideful, arrogant, ignorant, finite self question or doubt God, but instead praise Him. Live your lives in confidence in God. Walk by faith and obedience in these things. When we read God's Word and we see what He has done and it is not the way we would have done it, may we be humbled and reminded that our way is absolutely lame compared to His way. Our economy of thinking is utterly broken compared to His. No matter how many people we can get to agree with us, that counsel is not smarter or wiser than God. Let us obey His commands and praise Him for His holy ways. Amen? Brother, sister in Christ, in what ways are you guilty of denying God, disobeying His commands, questioning His decrees? May you confess this as sin, humble yourself to put away excuse, and turn from this unto obeying Him and worshiping Him for His perfection in His ways. Turn to honor Him in these things, brother, sister, in Christ. Not tomorrow. Not eventually. Today. Now. For He has given you today and has not promised you tomorrow. Amen? Look with me at what Paul says next. Making known to us the mystery of His will. What is in view here is the Gospel. It is God's work and salvation for undeserving sinners. It is His plan of redemption for His elect. In, it is the details of... of God's plan that He made before time to save His people through the perfect blood of His beloved Son. The full view of the Gospel has been a mystery to mankind until God chooses to unveil it. Therefore, the mystery here is not that it is incomprehensible, but that God reveals it to those whom He chooses when He chooses. 
Listen to Paul's words in a few of his other letters referring to the mystery of God's will in the gospel that has now been revealed to us who are saved. For example, Romans chapter 16, 25 through 27, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The mystery is the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of God the Son in flesh, Jesus Christ. On behalf of God's elect, for our salvation and to the glory of God, now and forevermore. This is Paul's emphasis in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 10. I'm going to read you from the NASB. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Church, this is the testimony that God has called us who are saved to share with the world. For those whom He will choose to save, They will be given ears to hear and eyes to see, to savor this good news, once a mystery, now unveiled. Listen to his charge to Timothy in the New Testament church in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and a beautress of truth, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaiming among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Or listen to Paul's words to the church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, 24-29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me. Amen. Paul uses the term mystery seven times in our letter here in Ephesians, as we'll study. Chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 3, 4, 6, 9. Chapter 5, verse 32. Chapter 6, verse 19. And as we just saw, a sample of Paul often uses the term in his other writings. Understand, the mystery is not a puzzle waiting to be solved. But instead, its secret is only known when God chooses to reveal it. One theologian describes it this way. The Old Covenant and God's work in ways in the Old Testament acted as a scaffolding. While it was needed and a vital part of God's ultimate plan, it was temporary. The building God was constructing via the scaffolding was not yet in full view. Signs and promises and types could be seen, but it wasn't until the work of Christ was complete that the scaffolding was removed and for many the building came into full view. The mystery of what God was doing, what He was preparing for His people, what He was pointing the hearts of the elect to was the Gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was God's purpose all along. This was His predetermined plan for undeserving sinners to be saved and for Him to receive glory. For His mercy and grace given in Christ to the elect and to receive glory for His power and wrath put on those who remain apart from Christ in the guilt of their sin. For those whom God gives ears to hear and eyes to see, they repent of their sin and believe. They trust in Jesus. They don't just understand the gospel mentally or historically. They see that it applies to them. The mystery is unveiled and it is for them. This is what the scriptures mean when it says to the unbelieving, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 This is what Jesus means when he says in Mark 4.11-12, He said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Or what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Or in John chapter 6, 44 through 45, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. By God's sovereign plan, holy will, and holy work, the veil is upon the guilty sinner, the mystery still a mystery, or in his providence in the preaching of the gospel, the veil is removed. They have, they're given eyes to see, ears to hear in their regeneration. And now the gospel in its full view is amazing. And every time the regenerate person confesses their sin and trusts their life to Jesus Christ. When God determines, the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, giving the elect person eyes to see, giving them saving faith. The mystery is unveiled. The gospel is in full view, and it's amazing. This is the doctrine of His irresistible grace. For all whom God gives new birth will believe in Christ. Again, those whom God gives ears to hear and eyes to see, repent and believe. They don't just understand mentally or historically, but they see that it applies to them. They commit their lives to Christ. The mystery is unveiled and they see that it's for them. This is Paul's driving point. As we move into verse 9 through 12, I'm going to skip a little section in the middle of this text as we're going to come back to it. Look with me at verse 9 through 12 of Ephesians 1. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Skip down to the second part of verse 11 having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. According to His purpose, set forth in Christ as a plan before the fullness of time, this is, church, the covenant of redemption. A covenant made by our eternal and holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything else is created, before time began. Word of Truth Catechism, question 56. What is the covenant of redemption? Here's the answer in short. The covenant of redemption is the plan and decree made before creation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to graciously redeem the chosen ones from sin and punishment based on the work required of Jesus. All of creation is set in the context of this divine plan. Church, this covenant or commitment that God made before time sets the stage for all of human history and eternity. This is God's big plan that everything else fits into. This is why He creates. Why He does what He does in all of human history and what He is planning for eternity. When we understand the covenant of redemption, 
the rest of the story of the Bible and eternity can properly be understood as revealed in the Scripture. All of creation is set in the context of this divine plan of God. That's a huge statement. That means everything that happens in creation happens because of this divine plan, the covenant of redemption. Matt Kirstein, one of our faithful elders, will be teaching on the covenants in the new year, 2021, at our midweek gathering. He's working this fall to prepare to help us climb into these most important truths of how God works in His covenants. I can't wait to join you to sit under this teaching. Um, He is doing a thorough work to take it to a new place. God's blessed him with some opportunity to run with some very well-respected theologians and material to help us continue to rightly understand the covenants. For those of you who are not regular at midweek gathering, I want to encourage you, I'm going to give you many months to prepare, to plan to begin to make that a practice. You are missing out on a ton of equipping that God is doing through your leaders to just come on Sunday. We need to take way more seriously the work that God has called us to do in the making of disciples and the spreading of the gospel. And one of the ways that you, the saints, are equipped in these things is to sit under your elders and leaders teaching in these truths, to understand them better and grow and mature. The last few weeks of midweek have been just a total joy to see how many of you across the board have said, My understanding of the commands, we're studying the commands of God, the Ten Commandments right now, is blowing my mind. There's levels and and depths to these things that I've never known. And I've missed it. And I'm so excited to know it better and to apply it and grow that we'd never be done growing in these truths and in these ways. So I encourage you to uh, make plans sooner than later. Uh, We'll be... We'll be meeting this week, so you could join us then. Let me just give you an excerpt from the last time Matt taught on the covenant of redemption a few years ago, saying, all of what we read about in the Bible happens because of this covenant. It means that the fall happened because God had decreed a plan for the giving of salvation to His chosen ones. It means the flood and the promise to not do it again happened because God had decreed a plan that was not finished yet. It means the temporary choosing of a specific ethnic group, ethnic people group, to protect and develop happened because God had decreed a plan that He was showing the need for and the bringing it to fulfillment. It means most amazingly that God sending Christ to come in flesh to accomplish the gospel work happened because God had decreed a plan that hinged on this as the pinnacle and justification of it. It also means that the eternal life believers look forward to is guaranteed to happen because God has decreed a plan that cannot fail or be annulled. It means all these things and a whole lot more. There's your teaser. This plan, church, this decree, defines human history as we know it. 
So, so hear these verses again. Ephesians 1, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Skip down to verse 11. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. The covenant of redemption is the plan and decree made before creation between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to graciously redeem the chosen ones from sin and punishment based on the work required of Jesus. All of creation is set in the context of this divine plan. This is the mystery that has been revealed to us, church. This is the perfect, wise plan of God to create us and destine us this way. See Paul celebrating this and holding it high. He's saying to the redeemed saints, and therefore to you and me, See what God has set out to do and what God has done. We are the recipients of this amazing grace, the work of Christ to redeem us, that all that we are and do would be in Christ to the praise of His glory. Church, our hope is in Christ Our hope is in Him who we cannot see, but whom we believe and trust. Christian, do you really trust Him? Or do you trust in only what you can control and see? If the latter, that's not faith. Faith is truly trusting in Him. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Maybe we quickly get our head around that one. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. You trust in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Is your faith and your hope in Christ alone? In Christ alone? Or are you guilty all too often lately of saying, but I want this and I need this and I'm hoping it goes this way and, or that way. Your hope is in these temporary things and dreams and good things, but not in Christ alone. Back to the text, Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first 
to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Paul's lifting up this hope we have in Christ. So let's slow again to remind, be reminded of what hope is. Definition of hope is best understood, in my opinion, in two parts. Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope for this or that. Hope is also a person or thing that may help or save someone. You put your hope in something or someone. Hope for, hope in. The Bible tells us the ultimate hope of the human heart. Watch this. The ultimate hope is not forgiveness. It's not justification. Or heaven, or freedom from disease. The ultimate hope of every human heart is the glory of God. We could almost slow to say these other things that I'm getting caught up in hoping in, and I'm so wound up, I'm so connected to them that they're affecting my disposition, they're affecting my marriage. They're affecting my my kids, my family. They're affecting my decision-making, my priorities. All that is a short aim of hope. Instead, the ultimate aim of our hope in Christ is the glory of God. Just just a taste, because this is all throughout Scripture. I'm going to run... Romans 5.2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't rejoice in the hope that the kids are going to start getting along. We don't rejoice in the hope that the finances are going to work out or this thing's going to go your way and not the other person's way. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Christian. Redeemed one, Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Romans 8.20-21, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who has subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom. The freedom of what? The freedom of the glory of the children of God. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Colossians 3.4 When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the fall, our first hope, our first hope is redemption, as we studied last week. Salvation, without which there is nothing but death and punishment. But our ultimate hope is for our participation in the glory of God which salvation brings. 
And this is Paul's emphasis. Look with me again at verse 9-12. through 12, Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Glory is our greatest hope. The glory of God. The inheritance He has secured for us in Christ alone. The work of salvation in us ends in glory. Oh, that we, the redeemed, would be way more fixed in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our eyes, on the glory of God. And putting away the failure of the temporary things that we get so caught up in. It ends with us united to God in the new heavens and the new earth, enjoying His glory forevermore. Amen? This is question 122 in the Word of Truth Catechism. What will eternal life be like in the new heaven and the new earth for the elect? Eternal life will be more a more intimate communion with God. We will be free from sin, evil, sickness, suffering, and death. We will be in the Lord's presence and glorifying Him for all eternity. It is better than we can even imagine. Church, the inheritance is the glory of God. This is the mighty conclusion of God's plan set forth before time. Listen to Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus spoke great news to his blood-bought family when he said in John 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Amen. Revelation 22.1-5, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of of the tree were for the healing of the nation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Because the new creation has no right. We have no no light in, in the new creation that is from anything else other than God, the Lord Himself. 
paradise of the Garden of Eden is restored better than that. It's upgraded. The new creation will be better than in the beginning. This is very important. Simply don't look back at the garden before the fall as the goal. No, God will make the new creation garden-like, but better. The river of water of life flows freely. The tree of life is available once again, yielding fruit, monthly leaves that will heal the nations. Isaiah 25, 6-9, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, and aged wine well refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This will be... The party of parties. A feast of rich food, the very best aged and well-refined wine. We will behold our God. All of that is just, it's just the appetizer. It's just the table setting. Why? Because the feast, the ultimate joy and satisfaction is God Himself. Behold means to look closely and intently at. In this, I want to be sure we grasp the fullness of the difference between just seeing something and beholding it. Isaiah 6, Isaiah is looking into heaven. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is the glory that belongs to the living God. I ask you, brother, sister, whose glory are you beholding? the only eternal and divine Son of God the Father? Who else is worthy, more than worthy of our beholding? No one, nothing. Psalm 36, 8, King James Version says it this way, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Christian, what are you guilty of getting caught up in lately? Fighting for, standing for, fixing yourself on. That's creating conflict. Fighting for temporary things that are going to wear out. Temporary agendas. Temporary uh, seasons of life and retirements and houses and whatever else is distracting us from the glory of God. The purposes of our days here and now. That we repent of these things that we are fixed on short-sightedly, and we fix ourselves on the beauty of this inheritance, the beauty of glory. Our hope is in Him. The Bible loves to talk about the riches of God's glory, the fullness of joy at His right hand, that He gives us His best, and it never runs out. 
whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4.14 This leads us to a vital understanding that the great, greatest prize in the new creation and for eternity is God himself. Again, 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 The greatest joy of the new creation will be our uninhibited fellowship with the presence of God. O church, see what God is doing in His wisdom. See and savor it, that we may worship His name, obey His commands, testify His gospel every day, that He calls us to do it until He returns home. And the, and the revelation ends, Revelation twenty two twenty, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming soon, He says. And the response is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus come he's coming church in his perfect wisdom and insight he's coming again to bring it all to its holy conclusion and to take us home to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth Paul's welling up in in the clarity of these things that we the redeemed would see and savor this but in the meantime We're given a commission from our holy God in all of His wisdom and insight. A mission, a testimony to give to those who are still dead in sin. A discipleship for those who are saved by grace to raise them up to testify of that gospel and make disciples. Jesus gave us something very special to carry on until He comes again. And we're going to conclude our worship service this morning with that. And that is the Lord's Supper. Listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians In 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what we're going to do right now, church. Those of you who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear the mystery of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've confessed your sins. You've died yourself to trust your life to Jesus. He's the Lord of your life. You no longer are on the throne of your own life. You're saved by His grace. You're now being sanctified in the work of His Word, and the work of the Holy Spirit, partnership and fellowship with the body of Christ. Then this remembrance, this testimony is for you not based on anything you've done or earned or merited, but based on Christ alone. We gather to take the unleavened bread, to take a cup of the wine or juice if you prefer, to, to testify of what Jesus has done. 
to remember, to thank Him, to praise Him for His grace. To be reminded, not for a moment in a church service that you would forget by your hamburger at lunch, but be reminded in such a way that it propels you out these doors to serve, to testify, to mobilize in what He's called us to do. For you who are not saved, you have yet to truly confess your sin before God and trust your life to Jesus Christ, then this is for you to observe, not to participate in. It's for you to see the testimony, see the symbols that the Lord has chosen, carry forth from the Passover meal, that we'd remember the body and the blood of Jesus, that you would consider your sin, and in God's perfect time, if He gives you eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of that gospel, that you too would repent and believe in Him for salvation. That's our hope and our prayer in His perfect time. And so we're going to gather, we're going to sing about how these things are all possible in Christ alone. We're going to sing, all glory be to Christ. Okay, so as you're ready, you can go. There's a place to put your cups in the little holders and the chairs in front of you. You can gather, you can pray, and uh, when we're done, I'll come back up to send us forth. Please don't hurry out of here. Let's enjoy this time. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. Oh, you are a good God. We thank you for the provision of the spotless Lamb, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is found in Christ alone. Our hope is ultimately for the glory of God alone. We are blessed, grateful, humbled. To be, we're we're blessed to be worked on this morning by the Holy Spirit. To have the Word of God do its intended work to bring conviction and bring clarity and motivation to obey and to, to, to speak truth and live out these things as you've given it to us. Oh, Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, the cross, Christ, the finished work of our Redeemer. And so we come to the table grateful. I pray for the unbelieving who would see this testimony this morning, that it would be your sovereign time for their new birth unto saving faith, a new beginning like never before, to be born again, to be alive in Christ, forgiven, set free. We pray for those who you will put in our path throughout this day. And if you ordain it tomorrow and the rest of this week, that we would be not so fixed on our little agenda and our little world that's very much centered around us, that we would be joyful to be sacrificial for the work you've called us to, the testimony, the making of disciples, these priorities you've given us, Lord. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.